Dear friends of Jesus Christ, at this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus has Jerusalem in his crosshairs. His face is firmly fixed on the city of David, and he is traveling there. Having heard the voice of his father on the mount where he was transfigured, Jesus now knows who he is and what he must do. And so as he walks, he is preparing himself to offer everything, his very life, out of love for his Father in heaven and love for his neighbor. Along the way, Jesus is teaching and training his disciples. When he's gone, he wants them to continue his ministry of preaching and healing, and so he sends them out two by two. They go into the villages in Jesus' name, and a few days later, they come back with stories of victory and hope. Ever the discipler, Jesus debriefs, debriefs these experiences with his disciples and prays for them. And it's during one of these debriefing sessions, or just after it, that an expert in the law approaches Jesus to test him. Now, it's important to know that this man wasn't a lawyer or a judge in the way that we conceive of those offices. Rather, he was a Bible scholar, an expert in the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. He's come to test Jesus, Luke says. Test what, I wonder? Test Jesus' orthodoxy? Test Jesus' knowledge of the law? Maybe this man just published his dissertation on neighbor love in the book of Leviticus and wants to see where Jesus stands on the relevant issues. Or maybe he's looking for a way to build up his own social status by challenging a popular rabbi. Whatever the case, Jesus is unfazed by the testing and the question. For him, this is all just another moment to disciple his followers in the way of his Father's kingdom. Teacher, the expert asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You're an expert in the law, Jesus replies. What do you read in it? What do you find there? Quoting the Torah, the man answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, being a man of the book too, appreciates and commends this man for his answer. And it truly is a remarkable answer. This expert in the law, he's, he's smart. He's on it. He really gets the values and contours of God's kingdom. Jesus himself, in fact, gives the same answer that this expert in the law gives when asked about the greatest command. It is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So clearly this man, he knows, he knows the law of Moses. But it's one thing to have the right answer in your mind. It's another thing to live it out. Eternal life in God's kingdom is not simply for those who know the right answer. It's for those who put it into practice. Do this, says Jesus, and you will live. Do this. Don't just quote the relevant passages when you want to impress a rabbi. Do this, and you will live. So far in the discussion, Jesus and the expert in the law are in complete agreement. But the expert in the law wants to justify himself. He wants to show himself to be in the right. So he asks Jesus, 
And who is my neighbor? Once again, the man's motives aren't exactly clear. Maybe he had a debate with one of Jesus' disciples and he, he wants Jesus to take a side in the debate. Or maybe he's interested in trapping Jesus in an academic debate that he's ready to win. Or maybe he simply wants to know the scope of his responsibility so that he can live it out and know himself to be justified or righteous in the eyes of God. Who is my neighbor? Who are the ones that I have to love in order to be right with God? This isn't really a stupid question. This This is a good question. I mean, to love God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind, it's, it's really hard, but there's a simplicity about it. There is only one God to love, and that God is good. But we have like six billion neighbors on earth, and we're a mixed bunch. How can we possibly love all our neighbors? I mean, the shirt that I'm wearing, it was made by a woman who lives in Sri Lanka, Her hands touched the garment that now touches my skin. And the fabric for the shirt was grown by farmers in Africa, Mississippi, Cambodia. All that cotton was put together and produced in a factory. And then it was sewn into a shirt. Were those people paid enough for their labor? And how can I possibly concern myself with them way over there when I have my hands full at home and here at church? The Jews in Jesus' day had spent a fair bit of time trying to figure out the extent, the boundaries of of this law in Leviticus 19, this love your neighbor law. They knew that they were commanded to love other Israelites. They knew that they were also commanded to love God-fearing foreigners among them. But what about the pagan Romans who are occupying their territory? Or what about those half-breed, unorthodox Samaritans? Surely not them. Surely there are limits to neighbor love. Who is my neighbor? Now, being an expert in the law, I'm sure that this man hoped that Jesus would give him some, some policy or some clean philosophical principle. Maybe something like this tongue-in-cheek example from Frederick Buechner. A neighbor hereafter referred to as the party of the first part, shall be defined as meaning a person of Jewish descent whose legal residence is within a radius of no more than three statute miles from one's own legal residence, unless there is another person of Jewish descent hereafter referred to as the party of the second part, living closer to the party of the first part than one is oneself, in which case the party of the second part is to be construed as the neighbor to the party of the first part, And one is then oneself relieved of all responsibility of any kind to the matters hereunto appertaining. It's it's funny, a little ridiculous, but it would kind of be helpful if Jesus gave us a little fine print on this neighbor love business. I mean, how can you tick off the I I loved my neighbor today box when you don't know which ones you are supposed to love and which ones you are allowed to pass over? Perhaps the expert in the law had mixed motives in asking this question, but the question itself, I think, is still a good one. But Jesus knows us well enough, and he knows the expert in the law well enough to know that legalese is not the way to answer this question. 
He knows that if he gives us boundaries, we'll spend all our energy debating the interpretation of those boundaries instead of living into our call to actually be a loving neighbor. So instead of policy, Jesus does what he does best. He tells a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. What man? Who is this man? We wonder about the identity of this traveler. Was he a Jewish man or a Roman man? Was he a rich man or a poor man, a big, big scary man, a gay man, a drug-addicted man, a con man, an escaped-from-prison man who maybe deserved this beating up? Who is this guy? Part of the brilliance of Jesus' parable is that this man is not identified in any way. The only thing we know about him is that he's a man. Some guy, some guy walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And along the way, he's attacked by robbers. They stripped him. They beat him and went away and they left him naked and half dead lying on the side of the road. So things aren't looking so good for this unidentified man on the road. You do not want to be left for dead in the Judean wilderness. It is a desolate place. But as luck would have it, there happened to be a priest walking down that same road. And, and he saw the man. But he passed by on the other side. Not long after, a, a Levite, too, came upon the man lying on the side of the road. He saw the man, but he, too, passed by on the other side. Well, Jesus doesn't identify the roughed-up uh, man. He's quite specific about the priest and the Levite. These are men of religious standing. They're born into families known for their righteousness. When people saw these religious folks in their religious robes, they'd say, there goes a godly man. That guy understands the book of the law. He knows how to live so as to please God. But in this story, both of them see and both of them do nothing to help. Of course, it's quite easy to be critical of the priest and the Levite, but maybe try to put yourself in their shoes. Maybe they were on their way to the temple. Maybe they had to be there at a certain time. Maybe they had already cleansed themselves and touching a corpse on the side of the road would have made them unfit to offer sacrifices. How do you make decisions between neighbors who are at the place where you are going and the neighbor right in front of you on the road? Or maybe they were going home and their wives gave them strict instruction to be home no later than 4.30 because the family was counting on him to be home. What goes through your mind when you pass by a passed out man on the sidewalk? This is getting out of hand, I usually tell myself. Someone ought to do something about this, right? This is getting out of hand. Someone ought to do something about this. But me, I've got to go to work. And I can't solve all these social problems on my way to work. Perhaps the priest or the Levite wrote a letter to their city councilor that night. Or maybe in the next election, they voted for the person who promised better security on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Maybe they had good reason 
for passing that man by that day. Maybe they worked all the harder for justice in their city. But that day, they didn't stop. But the third person that comes walking down the road takes a different approach. Jesus identifies this man as a Samaritan. We call him good, but the phrase good Samaritan would have been an oxymoron to the Jews of Jesus' day. Samaritans were of suspect pedigree. They were half Jewish and half mixed race with the other nations. According to the Jews down in Jerusalem, Samaritans also had very bad theology. They rejected Jerusalem as the center of worship. They had different views regarding the scriptures. I was trying to think of a contemporary example that could help us understand how Jewish people felt about their Samaritan neighbors to the north. And maybe the best, the best I could come up with is a little funny, but I think it works. Maybe they viewed, viewed Samaritans a little like we view our American Christian friends to the south who elected President Trump president. You know, I haven't heard too many people that like Trump in our church. Maybe there's a few of you. But most of us think, what are they doing down there? Who are those people? How can they call themselves Christians? And when someone finds out that you're a Christian too, one of the things we say, but I'm not like the people down there, right? They're kind of crazy. NRA membership in their, you know, their wallet, Make America Great Again sticker on their, the bumper of their Ford truck. Like, sometimes we'd even go as far, like, these people, they're what's wrong with the world, Right? Well, perhaps that's how the Jewish people thought about their Samaritan neighbors to the north. Good for nothing. But to everyone's surprise in this situation, it's the Samaritan, the redneck Trump supporter, who steps up to the plate. He sees the man lying on the side of the road and he has compassion on him. Compassion, critical word in this text. Compassion. The Greek word is splank nizomai, and it's a great word, splank nizomai. It means literally to have one's bowels yearn, to have your innards be moved. This word is used when the father uh, in the parable, parable of the prodigal son sees his, ro- his son coming down the road. He has compassion on him. His innards yearn. He His heart goes out to the the boy. This word is used also when Jesus sees the widow who's just lost her son. He's moved with compassion for this woman and her situation. So the Samaritan saw and he was moved internally. To be compassionate is to feel deeply another's pain and their situation and to act mercifully to those in need. Moved by compassion, the Samaritan jumps into action. He pulls out his first aid pack and bandages the man's wounds. Then he pours on to the man's wounds oil and wine, expensive stuff. Then he picks up the man, puts him on his own donkey, and takes him to the nearest inn. And the next day, the Samaritan pulls out his credit card and gives it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he says, and when I return, I'll pay for everything in full. The first thing that struck me as I pondered the actions of this Good Samaritan was, wow, what a risk to take 
while traveling down the road. I mean, we don't know who this guy is. He could be one dangerous fella. Maybe he was a thief. Or what if when he was in the hotel, he ordered all kinds of expensive room service and then put it on the man's tab? Or maybe this condition, his condition was such that it got worse and he was in need of expensive medical attention. You do not know what you're getting into when you decide to stop and take care of a half-dead man you find on the side of the road. But I suppose that's the risk you take when you see need and your heart is filled with compassion. Who was the neighbor to this man? asks Jesus. Notice that Jesus reframed, reframed the question here. The expert in the law asked, and who is my neighbor? But Jesus responds by saying, who was the neighbor? The expert in the law wanted to have a theoretical conversation about boundaries. He wanted to have a debate regarding the ins and outs of Leviticus 19 so that he could justify himself. But Jesus won't engage in theory. The question for Jesus is not, who is my neighbor, but will you be a neighbor? The priest and the Levite could have quoted the relevant chapters and verses of the Old Testament talking about neighbor love and and all the responsibilities that come with it, but only the Samaritan actually was a neighbor, and that was expressed in mercy. Go and do likewise, Jesus said. I don't know about you, but I make up a lot of excuses, and of course they're all very justified in my head. You know, I make up a lot of excuses in order to remain selective in my love for neighbor. I have compassion, but it's best when it fits within my schedule how to use it. Hopefully it doesn't cost me too much either. I like to feel safe, so some of these situations seem kind of risky. Maybe not today. Literally last week, and I wasn't preaching on this passage last week, it would have been interesting to know what I would have done if I had been. I think I, I hope I would have responded differently. But I was walking home from Starbucks and I literally saw a woman slumped over on the stairs near Uptown. She was most likely passed out, maybe drunk. I'm not sure. And I'm not sure because I didn't stop to ask her how she was doing or if there was anything that I could do to help. In that moment, I was a priest and a Levite. You could add pastor to this list of people walking down the road. Lord, have mercy. Will you be a neighbor? Will you have compassion on and show mercy to all? And any, not knowing anything about their identity as a person. It takes courage, intentionality, a willingness to let your schedule be tossed to the side in order to uh, engage a need in front of you. You have to see people and not simply social problems. Just the other day, I finished a book called Hospitality Comes with a House Key. It was written by uh, Rosaria Butterfield. 
The Butterfields live in Durham, North Carolina, and they practice hospitality, hospitality in their home and neighborhood daily. This is their vocational ministry to open their table to their neighbors. Their table is full literally seven days a week. One day, a man named Hank moved into the house across from the Butterfields. Hank kept to himself. He avoided eye contact. He certainly didn't like it when Rosaria came over and knocked on his front door and asked him if he wanted to go for a walk with her family. Uh, Hank had a dog, and they had a dog, so let's go for a dog walk together. One day, um, Hank said yes, and together they slowly started to build a relationship. But after a year or so, one morning, the Butterfields woke up to find Hank in handcuffs, his house wrapped up with yellow police tape. Turned out that he had been cooking meth in the basement. Eventually, his addiction got the better of him. But that didn't stop the Butterfields from being Hank's neighbor. They took in his dog and helped with his partner and and her situation. Um, And and though their property value went down for being located next to a meth lab, their hospitality ministry to Hank increased. Rosaria and her children wrote letters to Hank in prison. Ken, Rosaria's husband, visited Hank monthly. Together as a family, they prayed and they prayed and they prayed for him. And one day... Though behind bars, Hank came to find freedom in Christ. That's what being a neighbor looks like. Turning towards instead of turning away. Knocking on the door, knocking on the door, knocking on the door, even though you don't get the best response all the time. Courageously engaging instead of making decisions in fear. Seeing need and responding with mercy. Jesus refuses to draw boundaries around this call to love neighbor. And this can be overwhelming uh, because the need is so great and our responsibilities are, are many. But I'm also convinced that as you live in tune with God, he will show you when to lean in and when to retreat. This is the way that Jesus showed mercy. He knew when when it was time for him to lean in, to heal the sick, to lift up the lame. He also knew when it was time to retreat in order to be with his Father in heaven and to pray. In fact, in the next story, we find Mary sitting quietly at the feet of Jesus. She could have been a neighbor to all the other neighbors who were in her house that day. That's what Martha wanted her to do. Come help me in the kitchen. We've got people to feed. Be a neighbor. But instead, Mary knew that it was time to focus on one neighbor in particular, Jesus. And speaking of Jesus, could we have a better neighbor? He's the best. He saw people and he had compassion on them. He surveyed the human condition and said, this is a social problem that I'm going to take on. While it's easy to talk theoretically about loving God and neighbor, in reality, we all fall short, but Jesus didn't. In fact, he offered his life out of love for God and love for his neighbor. In fact, he even had compassion on those who were nailing him to the cross, 
Father, forgive them, he prayed, for they don't know what they are doing. And I wonder, the only person in this parable we haven't tried to relate ourselves with this morning is that unidentified man lying on the side of the road. Who is he? Maybe it's me. Maybe it's you. Beaten up by sin, left for dead on the side of the road. But then Jesus came by. He saw us, had compassion on us, bandaged up our wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he pulled out his credit card and put our wholeness on his account. Let him be your neighbor today. Let him fix you up and tend to your wounds. And then with your heart enlarged by his mercy, open your heart to others. Here's another picture of the road uh, down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's filled with people, people who have been loved by Jesus, filled with people who are now scattered throughout Canada, ready to love their neighbors as themselves. Join this great procession of people who have been neighbored by Jesus, who have been loved by him, and now are loving others. Amen. Let's pray together.